Welcome to Real Estate Coaching Radio, starring award-winning real estate coaches and number one international best-selling authors, Tim and Julie Harris. Real Estate Coaching Radio is the nation's number one daily radio show for realtors who demand authentic real-time coaching. Get ready for fluff-free, unfiltered, full-strength honesty about what's truly working to get you into action, helping others, and making money now in today's real estate market. Now to our hosts, Tim and Julie Harris. Okay, we are back. Julie, welcome back to Real Estate Coaching Radio. Guys, we're going to finish up where we left off yesterday when we were talking about the points of avoiding these 15 common financial mistakes. This is the third part. Julie and I are going to be going through all of the remaining points today. So we're going to be going through seven or eight points relatively quick. Make sure you guys are taking a lot of great notes. I do appreciate the emails we've been getting from some of you about um, these tips. It's interesting how many of you are actually actively thinking about this stuff at a very high level. In other words, you are looking, it seems like some of the points we're touching on are kind of filling in the gaps with what your understanding was. And I hope you're taking away from these points of the last few shows about uh, your, essentially your financial planning. I hope you're realizing, again, the topic of today's show is warning, uh, avoid making these 15 financial mistakes in today's part three. I hope and I think you guys are getting the fact that ultimately your financial current reality and future is really 100% just dependent on you. And you cannot rely on, uh, you, you know, you can't rely on financial planners, you can't rely on accountants, you can't rely on all those people to make decisions for you. You can hope that they'll contribute to the decisions that you ultimately make. But if your present financial reality is not where you'd hoped it would be, chances are you've made or trusted some people that have given you some advice that wasn't necessarily bad, but wasn't necessarily the best approach that you should have maybe been taking at the time when it comes to your finances and your taxes. Um, so we learned most of this the hard way, personally, and so we had to ultimately uh, take it on ourselves to have our own financial education completed. Well, it never really even started through normal school, but we had to, you know, complete it to the point where we are confident in making the decisions that we've made financially over the past almost three decades of Julie and I being married. So what we're going to be doing is sharing with all of you the things that we've learned, but also the things we've learned from all of our coaching clients. We're blessed to have a lot of coaching clients that are extremely successful and some of which have huge net worths, tens of millions of dollars. And I've learned a lot, frankly, from a lot of the ways they've done their financial planning as well. So Julie, welcome to today's podcast. Yes, thank you. And it is my pleasure as always. And I'd like to start out with just a couple of quick book reviews and a reminder, if you don't have your Harris Rules book yet, I don't know what you're thinking, get on over to amazon.com and either download it to your device, download the audible version or get the good old fashioned hardcover book sent right to your doorstop, Amazon.com, and it's called Harris Rules. Okay, first we're going to do this uh, review from Russell Crowley, who writes, I have uh, had the real estate business on my mind for years now, and I have been a subscriber to Tim and Julie Harris podcast because of it. The thought of real estate was stuck in my head all the while working my nine to five job that I only kept for the sake of convenience. It's time for me to jump. I just read three chapters, and now the idea is seeming more capable already. All I know is that when I make this I do. 
I think some of you guys have picked up the fact that we approach things slightly differently. But the fact that we approach things differently, I think, benefits all of you because not all of you guys, you know, think the way I think or think the way Julie thinks. And the combination of the two of us seems to hit the nail on the head more often than not. So I'm going to write this. I'm going to read what I wrote, and then you guys can, and we'll discuss it, okay? Point number uh, six is you don't understand that one day, even if you can, you won't want to work like you are now. Time will become incredibly more valuable. In other words, time will be itself will become more valuable than the money you could have otherwise been earning from chasing deals. How will you pay your bills uh, when not from the sweat of your brow? Will you will you say thank you, past you know Tim and Julie, or thank you, past Bob, for having your financial plan together, or you or, or will you hate your former self for not taking those steps? So here's what I meant by that when when Julie and I were discussing this. A lot of you will have the financial, or I'm sorry, will have the physical stamina and the physical health and the desire and the motivation to work well past what normally would be retirement age of 67. We have coaching clients that are in their 60s and their 70s and even in their 80s, and they don't necessarily have to work like they used to. You know, their families are gone. They're just, you know, their overhead's not very much, but they, they do it mostly just because they're, you know, maybe they're supporting something they care about, a charity or a lot of folks basically help to, you know, when they reach a certain age, they're giving money away to their grandkids for college educations and all that good stuff. All that stuff makes sense. But here's the thing that we've noticed. Here's the thing that, frankly, we've noticed the older we get. Um, and it's, this is something that you don't understand when you're younger. And I didn't understand this when I was in my 30s and certainly my 20s, or even my early 40s. But as, as I approach, you know, I'm looking a few years from now, I'm going to be 50. And as I think about that, I realize that the thing that becomes more valuable is the time and how you use time more than necessarily more stuff or more money. But I have had many coaching clients, um, thousands probably at this point, who do not have the luxury of doing anything other than chasing the money because when they were younger, they didn't really financially set themselves up because they just essentially, you know, when their heads say, well, I'll do that tomorrow. I'll do the financial planning tomorrow. I'll buy investment properties that cash flow tomorrow. I'll pay off those debts tomorrow. I'll do everything tomorrow. And then the odd thing that happens is they hit an age where they don't have the necessary, uh, like I said, they want to spend less time chasing money at the same point in their lives when they need the money the most because they need to get their financial house in order so they can spend less time chasing money. You guys see the irony? So yesterday, um, he's not a coaching client, but uh, someone I'm, uh, Julie and I know who's a builder here in uh, Austin area, uh, we're getting to know him. And he uh, told us that he wants us to help him buy per, uh, purchase rental properties. And, we, and he's a very successful high-end custom builder. And he has never purchased rental properties. His whole entire career has been about doing transactions, just like many of you. A transaction for him was a build job. A transaction for him was maybe a remodel. A transaction for you is obviously a buyer or sell deal. So your best energies every day have gone to doing transactions. Those of you guys who are doing flips, you're just doing transactions. You're just doing real estate transactions where instead of making three or 6%, you may be hopefully making 10 or 15%, but you're still just doing transactions. When you do transactions, you're not really building any real wealth. You're just doing, you're just increasing your cash flow. So you might have a great income at the end of the year, some of you millions of dollars per year, I realize, but you don't have anything really to show for it because all that income went to paying taxes. It went to paying for your lifestyle. It went to buying that whatever. You guys get the point? So unless you are consciously, actively pursuing the idea of passive income, you won't create it. Passive income comes from 
the profit from your business, but it comes from knowing then what to do with that profit and not waiting around for someone else to, I mean, look, the conventional securities industry is going to tell you to you know, pack it into the stock market. Your financial planners are going to tell you to buy life insurance because guess what? That's where they make their money. You guys getting the point? Hopefully you are from having listened to the past couple shows. The obvious answer for all of you is to purchase real estate. I'm not saying don't purchase securities. I am saying do purchase securities. Do max out your tax preferred accounts every year. We talked about that yesterday and the day before. Do max out your Roth. Do max out your IRAs. Do all that stuff, but also be pursuing cash flowing real estate. And what was it? Two weeks ago, Julie and I were talking about the places to buy cash flowing real estate because many of you live in markets now where you can't because it's too expensive. Even if you paid cash for something, the rental uh, result will basically produce a less than 5% cash on cash uh, return. Like, you know, some of you guys, the cheapest you can buy a little dinky single family is five or 600 grand. And that little dinky single family is only going to rent out for $2,500 a month. And after taxes, it's just, even if you write a check for it and rent it out, it's a terrible return on investment. Remember when you're purchasing rental properties, guys, the uh, hypothetical appreciation is just a hopeful maybe. It's not something you want to bank on or make financial decisions around. You want to purchase stuff based on the uh, prospect of it cash flowing immediately or you know, soon in the future as you pay it down. And you want to use the benefits of the tax advantages of the depreciation. Julie, are you back? She is not back. Okay, so we're going to go on to point number seven. Hopefully you guys are taking notes. Hold on a second. Julie, are you back? Okay, you're so. back now. I did. Okay, You're back. Good. Okay. You call back. We can hear you. So I'm going to go on to point number seven. Point number seven is not realizing that financial retirement calculators are a mirage. <laughs> uh, I mean, isn't it obviously when I wrote the points versus when you wrote the points? Not realizing that financial retirement calculators are a mirage. They change the closer you get to retiring. They Are, are they accurate for you in your lifestyle? Now we Again, this is something we've touched on before. Financial retirement calculators are interesting to play with, but I'm telling you guys, they're all based, well, most of them based on the same algorithm. And here is what it is. Listen to your coach, or I might be your future coach. Here it is. They're going to basically figure, ask you how much money you spend per year right now in your personal lifestyle, 50, 60, 70, 100. I've had coaching clients whose personal lifestyle is over a million dollars per year. You know, so it, whatever your number is, most of you, you spend around $7,500 a month if you have kids. And if you don't have kids, most of you spend around $5,000 a month. That's, you know, some of you don't know what you spend, but when you put pen to paper, you'll discover that having had that conversation with billions of agents, those are what your numbers are probably going to be. If you live in California, that number is probably around twenty to 25000 a month if you have two or three kids. New York, the same thing. Okay, so where is this? Where do we go with this? Let's say you determine that your today number of how much money you need, just keeping the math easy, is ten thousand dollars a month. So the financial calculators are all designed to assume that once you re reach the age of sixty-seven, that you'll need ten x whatever you need today. So you'd need one point two million dollars, right? Ten thousand times twelve is one hundred and twenty. One hundred and twenty times ten is one point two million. Okay. So that's what they're going to do. Now, here's what they don't take into consideration. That A, you're not going to have kids to feed when you're 67, probably. <laughs> you're not going to have, some of you do, I realize. You're not necessarily going to have the same lifestyle when you're 67 as you do now. You're not going to have all the expenses that you do now. The one thing that can offset that is um, health, uh, health stuff that health insurance doesn't uh, pay for. And we talked about the HSAs before health savings accounts. 
I read, I've only read this once, so I don't know if it's true, but the average person in retirement spends over $200,000 on medical bills not covered by insurance. So that tells me that A, get better insurance, but B, while you can, uh, max out your HSA, your health savings account. And uh, again, that's one of those deals that basically it it's, uh, grows tax, uh, tax-free. It's all kinds of basically good. So you want to be maxing out your HSAs every year. And that way, when you do run into unexpected or unpaid health stuff as you get older, then it will be covered. Now, once you and I believe that that number I told you includes people that are on uh, Medicare. I always get those confused. I think Medicare is what everyone gets and Medicaid is what people that are uh, lower income earners or lower, you know, poor people get. I'm not, I might have those confused, but oh, regardless. Let me, let me jump in for a second with the health savings account because I have some specifics on that. It's a savings yeah. account that allows you to set aside money on a pre-tax basis to pay for qualified medical expenses. You're using pre-tax dollars in your HSA, which you can use for deductibles, co-pays, co-insurance, other ex uh, expenses to lower your overall health care costs. Now, um, let's see. The deductible has to be at least $1,350. In 2017, you could contribute $3,400 for your coverage and up to $6,700 for your family. And I think you can do that every year is my understanding. And yeah. some of your health insurance companies offer HSA. So you can actually do it through some of the health care um, companies themselves. So that's the deal with that. Well, why would you want to do that versus just squirreling away $6,700? Because from what I understand, well, basically, it lowers, it lowers your taxable income is the answer. Okay, so Julie, yep. let's stay on target here. So Go if ahead. you're, if again, the retirement calculators, guys, those are a little bit of a mirage because you could retire when the stock market was in, it was in shambles, okay? You, could you guys get the point. That's the reason that when you apply the spokes on the wheel analogy that Julie and I use for uh, lead generation, you should also apply that, apply that for your finances. We want you to have rental properties. And if let's just say you're listening and you're 40, you are absolutely batshit crazy if you don't buy probably at least one or two rental properties for the next five years and put them on 15-year notes Buy them in markets if your market's too expensive. Buy them in markets like North Carolina, Indianapolis, Indiana, North Par of Atlanta, Columbus, Ohio, in these really stable, rock solid, you know, what typically have been B and C investment areas for most of the big hedge funders. But buy in those areas and you guys are going to be rock solid with your retirement because then you're going to have Social Security. Then hypothetically, you're going to have rental income. Then hypothetically, you might also have some money significant from your stock market account. Remember what I told you yesterday, understanding the power of compounding interest, point number five. If you have, if you only put in $25,000 into your retirement account this year, and let's say you're 30, multi, or double that every about seven or eight years. And that's how much money, if you only put in that 25 grand, you'll have by the time you reach 67. And then you can then calculate, so let's say you get it up to five or $600,000, let's say. You can then realistically, without, adverse, without taking away from the principal, you can expect that stock market balance or that stock market portfolio to pay you at least probably, if it's say a million dollars, $60,000 a year. I, again, I don't expect all of you guys to get all this on first blush. Many of you have never been exposed to any of this stuff before. I understand that. What I'm trying to do is plant seeds. So at least you realize that as I said at the top of today's show and every other show, you are in control. Your, your decisions that you make today are going to determine whether or not tomorrow you're saying, hey, thank you, past Marcy, for basically making that smart decision 10 years ago to open up that HSA because now the decision I made 10 years ago is to free that. If you're finding yourself, well, let's put 
conversation at end and start making it super praise the future for you. So many of you are ill-prepared for the future because in your mind you thought you would be able to, or and I pray that all of you will, be able to continue to work forever, but most of you won't want to work forever because all of a sudden you're going to realize how finite uh, our lives are, how short our lives are, and you're going to be at the other end of you know maybe 60 or 70, and you're going to say, you know what, I can go out and kick some serious ass, I, but I would rather go to Africa. <laughs> or I'd rather go spend it with my grandchildren. I'd rather write the book I've been wanting to write. So your priorities change, but you've got to give yourselves the financial freedom to allow those priorities to change. You know, maybe you want to go on a cruise. Maybe you want to do different things, but you have to be taking care of the future version of you now. Some of you listening, you're in your 60s and 70s, and I don't want you guys to beat yourselves up because you maybe didn't make these decisions when you were earlier, but you do still have time to catch up but obviously you're not going to have the same luxury of somebody who is 25 who's listening, who actually takes this stuff seriously, which I hope everyone listening who is younger definitely does. All you millennials, you guys are going to have your asses kicked by taxes the older you get, no doubt. So you better be paying attention to this stuff more than virtually anybody else because I promise you the financial headwinds that you all are going to have are going to be 10 times more than what the, uh, you know, certainly Julie and I's generation, Generation X and the baby boomers experienced. All right, so next point, point number eight. Uh, okay, we already talked about this one, I'll read it anyway. You didn't realize the financial services industry's job uh, is to hedge your fear. In other words, they're, they're basically making money off your ignorance. Uh, they're hoping that you don't basically listen to someone like Julie and I and start being able to think independently. They wanted you to show up in their office or on their websites and show you all these graphs and give you all these worst case scenarios. So you basically overcommit to buying very expensive financial products. To try to understand what these guys, Julie, again, remind me of the book that, the name of the uh, Anthony Robbins book so we can give Tony Robbins a, I, a book. Let me look it up and get it super accurate. I'll be back in right, a second. Good. I'm going to go, no problem. I'm going to go on to point nine. Point nine, you believe that you should have it all in one bucket. Diversify your savings, rental, retirement account. You should have some gold. Yes, I said gold. You guys want to argue about that? I'll be happy to. You should have some real savings. You should, in other words, create spokes. I talked about that a second ago. Play the what if game. What would happen if we had another big recession? A lot of folks, if you, it's easy to like, I, Julie and I have known many people that have had way too many rental properties with way too many mortgages in markets that were not diversified. Um, I'm not going to talk about anyone in particular, but I'll just give you some broad examples. If you have all your rental properties in, for example, a market that all of a sudden has an economic setback, in other words, you don't have rental properties in different cities, you're going to be screwed. That's the reason, just like when you're buying stocks, just like when you're doing anything, you need to have diversified places where you own your rentals. Own some in North Carolina, own some in Indianapolis, own some in Columbus, own some in different areas. Don't just be like everybody else is only looking in their own backyard. Start in your own backyard, but if you're like most of the country, you're probably going to be in a situation where maybe stuff's too expensive. You might be blessed and in your own backyard, you find yourself living in an area where stuff makes sense to buy, where you can purchase stuff for like, you know, 120, 130,000 bucks, and you can rent it out for at least, you know, 75 cents to a dollar a foot, and the property taxes are low. What I just described for you was Charlotte, North Carolina, okay? That's exactly the reason that we're buying in that market right now. So diversify where you own your rental properties, own enough rental properties that you can basically through, you know, educated guessing, assume that once we're uh, paid off, that that in itself, that cash flow will cover your overhead. You know, some of you will be able to do this quicker if you have the cash flow to pay them off. So, for example, if you have to earn $10,000 um, per month, 
if you have $1.5 million of paid off real estate, roughly, uh, is that right? Uh, yes. No, it's probably more like $1.3 million of paid off real estate. After taxes, you'll have $10,000. So some of you are saying, holy shit, Tim, that's $1.3 million. Well, if you're just getting started, yeah, that's a big number. But if you're younger and you're getting started, you could figure that out. And also, yes, guys, uh, uh, inflation or appreciation is going to work in your favor. And so all these inflation talks are going to work in your favor if you own real estate, because what happens is the cost of the house will increase, but so will the rent. So Julie, what's the name of that book? Uh, the name of the book by Tony Robbins is Unshakable, Your Financial Freedom Playbook on Amazon. Okay, there you go. Okay, cool. All right, so point number 10, Julie. Point number 10, you get distracted by what we as coaches call pretty shiny things, such as new business trends, fads, branding, QR codes, and the like, thinking that if you just do this, that your company will magically be worth that, and you can have your exit plan with someone writing you a huge check. How many times have we heard that on calls, right? If I just do this, it's going to make my business worth this much more, the world will rain leads on me, and then my business is going to be worth that, and somebody's going to buy it. That's my big exit plan. Right. And that's a big fallacy, guys. That, well, listen to what Julie just said. Some of you actually believe that someone's going to buy your real estate practice. Nobody buys real estate practices, guys. You might be able to create a, a referral base if you decide to retire and get collect partial referral fees, but nobody's going to buy your real estate uh, business. Nobody's going to buy your team. I know there's been like two or three that have sold for any amount of money other than just referral fees, but the reality of it is, is that's not going to happen. If you have a brokerage, you guys know that maybe you can sell that, but it's not a huge multiple. If your business earns a million dollars in commissions per year as a real estate brokerage, you're going to be lucky if you get 250000 if you put it for sale. We've done podcasts with folks that have tried to sell their businesses before. We did podcasts with uh, people who broker businesses and real estate practices, really any personal practice. It's not just real estate. They don't sell for anything because there's no trailing income. An insurance agent, by the way, he can sell his business for a lot of money, assuming he has a lot of trailing income because they make money off the residuals. A dentist can sell his business for two or three times because generally speaking, dental practices see their patients every six months. Real estate agents, not the same thing. Even if you have the best systems in the world, if you're thinking that you're going to sell your business and that's going to be your exit plan, you're making a mistake. Now, could you have someone in place, a family member or someone you trust to run it and you can pull money from it? Yes. But if that's your only source of business, again, eggs in one basket usually results in a lot of broken eggs. All right. Point number, we're doing good, Julie. I think we're going to get all these today. Eleven. Point number 11. Oh, okay. This one's a good one. This is an original Tim and Julie point too. We always like our own points. <laughs> point number 11, not embracing the fact that your product is your profit. Here's the story. We're in front of you and a you know, thousand other agents. And we're on stage and we ask you guys, and you've been in situations like this before, you know how it is. It's almost you know, so predictable. It's almost humorous. We ask the audience, what is your product? And all of you are going to say the same thing. Happy customers sold houses. You're going to say all these types of things. All those things are true, but none of those things are the bottom line answer. The bottom line answer is your product is profit. Now, why are we like, why are we saying that? Because if your business is not creating profit, you do not run a successful business. And so you're running in essence a nonprofit or even worse, you're running a business that's gonna go out of business and cause you to have financial uh, serious financial problems. Your ultimate product is profit. Okay, 
So am I being some sort of cold-hearted bastard that's not taking into consideration you have to do a great job for customers? No, of course not, because here's the bottom line. You're not going to have any profit if you're not doing a fantastic job for your customers and your clients. You're not going to have any profit unless you're selling houses, unless you're exceeding expectations of all the other folks you're doing business with, unless you're running a smart business, unless you're good at selling, unless you're good at all the things that are necessary. So all those things that you guys think you're doing, that that is the result of your, you know, what you're producing, sold houses, those things come as a result of being profit-driven. If you're not profit-driven primarily, you won't have any profit because you'll spend it on, going back to point number 10, all the pretty shiny things. Now, there's a great book. Well, we think it's a great book. Being honest, most of the people I refer this book to don't like it. It doesn't matter. It's still a great book. It's okay. called Profits Aren't Profits. Well, they don't. People don't like it because this book is so it, this book was written by a guy who based profits aren't everything. They're the only thing. Nobody in real estate will ever celebrate this book because it is so focused on the truth about why businesses fail. It's very direct. It is inspiring for Julie and I. We read this book. Well, we listen to this book every year because it gives us a gut check to where even us, and you guys know how drilled down we you know, try to be, where we even make some of the mistakes that he points out in that book. So it's one of my favorite business books of all time. Profits aren't everything. They're the only thing. Go get that book. All right. Point number 12, Julie. Yes, point number 12 is believing that if you just get one more designation, that the world will rain leads upon you. I'm going to spend all my time this month getting all those designations done. Okay, that's great. You like letters after your name. It looks good on your email sign-off. But that by itself does not make a hill of beans difference in your lead generation. It doesn't. Part of those designations, do, it does not come with, okay, so you get choose your designation. And here's 10 listings that go with it. Believing that if you just get one more, that's all it takes. Big mistake. Back what's to you. The, what's the great, but what's the greater point there, right? The greater point that Julie's making is that you, many of you do not realize that your job, and this leads perfectly into point number 13, it, and point number 13 is you're confused about being a salesperson. Many of you are conflicted about the fact that you're a salesperson. Our friend Jeb Blunt wrote the book, uh, what is it called, Julie? Fanatical Prospecting. You guys should read that. And so if you don't see yourself as a salesperson, you're making a huge mistake. And so the people, generally speaking, that don't see themselves as a salespeople, salesperson, thinks that the designation, thinks that all the letters, thinks that all the added education, thinks that all that is going to attract people to them. And the fact is, is that you are in a sales. Now, here's a little, I think, epiphany for many of you. Everyone who's running a business, if they don't see themselves as being in a sales business primarily, are, they're going to fail. It does not matter what you're selling. If you're going to be successful at it, you are a salesperson. You're going to have to be a great one if you're going to be great. And you know, to be conflicted about the word salesperson is going to doom you to mediocrity, if not failure. And again, if you're spending all of your time pursuing these degrees and these educational things and not pursuing your time becoming a fantastic salesperson, you're going to struggle needlessly. So wrap your arms around point number 13, which is, you know, you're confused about being a salesperson. Be the best salesperson that you can be. See yourself as a salesperson. Confront head on what your misconceptions are about the word salesperson. Here's a little, again, hopefully an epiphany for many of you. The richest of the rich in the history of humanity have always been salespeople. I want you to think about that. The best doctors have been salespeople. The best authors, the best everyone have been salespeople. The best 
religious leaders are sales. Jesus, Buddha, they were salespeople. They were, weren't they? I know. It's kind of some of you are offended because I just talked religion. But just think about it. I mean, in order for Jesus to get people to follow him, he had to know how to sell, didn't he? In order for a doctor to talk you into a procedure that you don't want to do, that dude needs to know how to sell, doesn't he? Now, would a doctor say, I'm a salesperson? No. Would a religious leader say they're a salesperson? Probably not. But they are, aren't they? So are you. Okay. Your job is to sell folks into the fact that you can help them solve that problem, which is buying or selling a home. Point number 14. You think you already know it all and you've heard it all, which makes you unwilling to change, grow, and expand your thinking. A lot of folks get to the point in their lives, or and sometimes it happens when you're in your 20s, where you've had some success, where you think you've got it all figured out and you don't change and you don't evolve. You think, oh my gosh, I got my scripts down. I got my system down. I got everything down. I'm going to lock this shit in and I'm going to ride this horse until the, you know, all the way into the horizon for the rest of my career. I'm never going to change. Now, I'll be honest with you guys, when Julie and I got into real estate, you could actually lock into a business model and have it work for you for probably at least three to five years without any great changes. Nowadays, there's no such thing that you're not going to have to modify it like every 12 months, except proactive lead generation. In other words, you actually making calls, that has never changed. You working your centers of influence and past clients, how you go about doing it, that's changed slightly. But at the end of the day, that's never changed. It's all the other gimmicky stuff that you guys spend so much time on. That's the reason the Facebook ads, that everyone was talking about that a few years ago. And now Facebook ads don't really work anymore. That's the reason buying leads don't really work anymore. It's because all that stuff doesn't even last a year before it stops losing its effectiveness. Maybe 12 months if you're lucky, but most times those things just go pop in less than six months. So if you are addicted to trying to look for silver bullets, and looking for shortcuts to lead generate, you're going to go broke. You're going to go frustrated. You're going to get frustrated and you're going to lose incredibly valuable time because you didn't go back to point number 13, lock into the fact that you're a great salesperson. So your job is to become the best version of you as a salesperson as you can, which means you have to master the craft of being a salesperson. Some of you have not ever mastered the craft of anything. Look, I get it. I'm not trying to insult you with that. I'm just stating a fact. Some of you have never put in the effort to be really good at anything. You've just always been average or mediocre. I get coaching clients that all the time. You know, they'll, they'll, they're struggling with something. And I ask them, you know, when was, what was it something anywhere in your past? And sometimes we got to go all the way back to like when they were two. Has there been anything that you were really exceptional at? Anything that really you were recognized at uh, being, having done? Re- and sometimes guys, They'll bring up uh, having won an art award or a spelling contest in their elementary school. And after that, they have never been exceptional at anything. Now, why? It wasn't because they weren't smart enough or good looking enough or all those things. It's because they never stuck, they never st- uh, stuck to it long enough, drilled down long enough, and actually put in enough effort to get good at anything. So most of us go through life with kind of these mediocre to you know, shitty results because we have not, no one tells us that in order to get really good at something, you have to absolutely drill down, be absolutely myopic, laser focused in the accomplishment of the mastery in your cases of being a, the best version of a salesperson as you can. When you do that, you win. When you struggle with that, you will always lose because you're never going to be good enough. You're never going to be as good as you can be you will always be mediocre and you always get mediocre results in the competition in the market. I heard somebody say to me yesterday, again, not going to say who, 
that they actually insinuated that your only competitor is yourself. What a bunch of bullshit that is. There are no two winners when it comes to taking a listing. There are no two winners when it comes to getting somebody to marry you. There are no two winners when it comes to anything in life worth having, are there? So the idea that your only competitor is you, that's not true. You have real competitors in life. They want the money that you want to get. They want the life that you want to have. So you need to become a incredibly powerful competitor by becoming the best version of a salesperson as you. Now, every one of you are going to be on a different path for that. You know, most of you are going to be able to follow a similar path, right? The spokes in your wheel, the lead generation wheel. For the most of you, it's, they're going to be the same thing. But some of you are going to be brilliant at centers of influence and past clients and terrible at, say, for example, going after for sale by owners. So as a coach, we're going to focus you on, on getting really, really good, incredibly good at the things you're already good at and maybe, maybe get you to the point where you're average at hunting fizzbos in that example. And that just, that works out perfectly. You don't have to become great at everything. You have to become great at probably one or two things and good at probably one or two things. And when you do that, guys, you have it locked in. You have a stable business with consistent cash flow. Point number 15. Let me make sure I'm point number 15. Oh, point number 15. You believe that prospecting is just for new agents and that buying leads and marketing your way to business is the solution. And that's a huge mistake. And by the way, guys, that's been a mistake that's been going on for the past 20 years, but it's been going on in spades for the past, really, since Zillow, that agents are really rationalizing that they don't have ever learn how to prospect. But the truth is, guys, is no one's ever telling you that. No one's ever telling you that you need to learn how to proactively lead generate. Everyone's basically, be, you know, you go to your broker, most of you guys get your real estate licenses, and you go to your broker, and what does the broker tell you to do? Buy leads, right? Isn't that what's happening? You know, you go to these real estate conferences and you walk in and you think you're going to hear some, you know, big, bright, you know, whatever. You think you're going to be getting all these educational thing and you walk in, what do you walk past? Sponsored by Zillow. Well, guys, that's what the hell you're going to be hearing about, buying leads. So you, some of you have only been in the industry during this whole buying leads fad. And so you think that's the only way to build your business. And when you're there, who are you running into? More confirmation bias from other people buying leads. Who do they have on stage? Oh, I know, people buying leads. So you have never been exposed to the fact that that is not the way to, to really have a stable business because you're always going to be dependent on buying leads. Those of you guys who have been buying leads for 10 years, what's happening to the quality of those leads? What's happening to the cost of those leads? What's happening to the cash flow in your business? Because you never accepted the fact that you have to be a masterful salesperson whose first skills are learning how to proactively lead generate. Hopefully, guys, these 15 points for the past three shows have helped you. That is our goal, our purpose, our intent, our mission from doing this podcast. Remember to request a free coaching call at freecoachingcallsforagents.com. And when you do, we give you six books, including the Real Estate Treasure Map. Definitely want to grab that if you've not completed your 2018 business plan yet. If you guys need us for anything, it's Tim at timandjulieharris.com or Julie at timandjulieharris.com. Have a fantastic day. We'll talk with you on the show tomorrow. This program has been a presentation by Tim and Julie Harris, Real Estate Coaching. For more information on our real estate coaching and training programs, visit our website at timandjulieharris.com. Remember to tune in weekdays at noon for upcoming shows. And until next time, thank you for listening to Real Estate Coaching Radio with Tim and Julie Harris. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.